Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, the rest of you uh, can open your Bibles, please, to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there are paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, and this passage is on page 552, I believe, 552, Romans 12, 3 through 21. Before we get into this, let me make a very quick announcement. Uh, next week, we're going to have a pitch-in meal, which is something that we haven't done in quite a while. And so this will be a meal after the service, next Sunday, not today, next Sunday. And so we would love for you to contribute, <clears throat> um, and the theme is soups. So if you could bring a, a pretty large soup, maybe with some bread uh, along with it, that would be super helpful. If you want to bring dessert, that's fine too, though that's optional. Um, but uh, drinks will be provided, but that'll be a pitch-in meal next Sunday after service in the fellowship hall. But I want to, <clears throat> to take note of the fact we're going to have a special guest with us next week. Uh, it's a guy named Ari Hurwitz, and Ari serves with the organization here in Muncie that is helping to come alongside the Afghan refugees who are coming to Muncie, and it seeks to find a place for them to live and to get them integrated into our community. And so during the pitch-in meal, Ari is going to be talking to us about that, just explaining what's going on with that and telling us how we as a church can help. So if you're interested in that, um, I would encourage you to stay and hear from Ari. I would also suggest that, uh, or just kind of uh, alert you to the fact that he is going to be looking for financial contributions because that's what they, they really need. They need money to help these families. Uh, so if you have a heart for this, and the Lord is leading you in this direction, you might come next week prepared to financially give to Ari. So that's next Sunday. Looking forward to that. We want to give a warm welcome to Ari Hurwitz. All right, let's turn our attention here to Romans 12. <clears throat> um, we're continuing here a series that we started last week on the core values of our church. That is the uh, the principles that we stand on as a church, the five things that we find very important for us to pursue. And um, one thing that I know has been on a lot of our minds, unmistakably, you can't avoid it, is just the impact of the COVID pandemic uh, over these last couple of years. And we've been hearing a lot about the political implications of this and the economic implications and the effect on education and health care. Um, the effect has been pervasive in all aspects of our world, and studies are now beginning to reveal a little more about how um, the, the pandemic and the efforts that have been expended to deal with it are affecting us personally. Now, of course, we've all known probably loved ones who have passed away from COVID. It's very sad, very sorrowful, but what, what a lot of these studies are revealing uh, are a different kind of personal impact. That, that is that uh, studies are saying that uh, a lot of us are feeling a whole lot more lonely now than we were before the pandemic. That a lot of efforts that have been expended to help us deal with this have separated us. Uh, there was a study by Harvard University, came out in uh, 2020, the name of the study, Loneliness in America. And it reported that since the pandemic, there are 36% of Americans saying that they've had to deal with serious loneliness. That's the, the phrase that's used, serious loneliness. 36, about a third of people in America. <clears throat> kind of interestingly, 
loneliness has been striking younger people even more. Of those aged 18 to 25, the percentage of people who have said they've had to deal with serious loneliness is 61%. So loneliness is hard for any of us to deal with, of course. It has a kind of an emotional impact on us. But there are a lot of other impacts or um, results of loneliness. Loneliness can lead, of course, to depression, um, anxiety, substance abuse, and even suicide. So the CDC in 2020 even reported that before the pandemic, from the years 1999 to 2018, the suicide rate in the United States had increased by 35%. That's before the pandemic set in and began to exacerbate the problem of loneliness. Now, my purpose here this morning is not to comment on lockdowns or mask policies or anything. That's, that's not what I'm going to talk to you about today. I, I simply am wanting to highlight how important it is that we be in relationship with one another. How important it is that we connect with people, that we be with people. It is not healthy for us to be separated from one another. And so that provides a good opportunity for us to talk about our second core value, which is the core value of belonging. Last week we talked about the first core value, A, adoration, worship. We talked about that last week. Today, belonging. And so here's how we describe this core value of belonging here at New Life. <clears throat> because we have been adopted into the family of the triune God through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, we want to establish deep bonds of friendship with our brothers and sisters, hold one another accountable to holy living, and encourage one another to persevere in our walk with Christ. We value this. This is important to us as a church. If you call this your home, this is something you're going to hear a lot about and have heard a lot about. This does not mean that everybody in this church has to be your best friend. It doesn't mean that you have to come to every single social function that we have here at the church. Nor does it mean that if you're introverted, you need to somehow become an extrovert. But it does mean that you cannot persevere in your walk with Christ alone. You can't do it by yourself. You need the church. You need community. You need relationships. And that's what Romans 12, this passage we're going to look at today, is going to tell us about. Written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's given us instruction about how to relate to one another, how to promote healthy community and a sense of belonging. So let me read this to you. If you're able to stand, please do so. <clears throat> Romans 12. I'm going to read verses 3 through 21. <clears throat> Romans 12, 3 through 21. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, 
Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Spirit of the living God, come and open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So, you may have noticed at the very beginning of this passage, uh, at least in verse 3, there's uh, an emphasis on how we think. The word think is mentioned three times here in verse 3. And so that's how we're going to approach this sermon this morning. Um, Thinking about how it is you think of yourself, how it is you think of others, your friends in particular, and how you think of your enemies. Because how you think about all of these groups will have a lot to do with how well you function in a community. So let's consider this first point, how to think of yourself. Uh, I don't know if you consider this, but the way you think of yourself has a lot to do with how you relate to others. You know, if you're a prideful person and you just think you're God's gift to the church, you just have this exalted opinion of yourself, it probably will lead you to be a little bit rude, maybe dismissive, maybe bossy, maybe aloof, just think you're too good to need other people. Pride can lead to poor relationships, but if you think too lowly of yourself, that can also affect your relationships with others. It can lead to feeling defensive, fearful, suspicious. And so what Paul tells us to do here in verse 3 is to think of yourself with sober judgment. That is to think of yourself realistically, honestly, rationally, and as the verse goes on in verse 3, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned you. That is, we all have been given different amounts of faith and grace and talents and skills and abilities. We're not all the same, and we need to think soberly about that, not thinking that we have gifts that we don't have, but being able to recognize the gifts that we do have. And so that's what Paul is telling us here. So we're just going to think about these these two things. There's a contrast that Paul gives us here, very practically, about how we think of ourselves. The first one is very clear. Don't think too highly of yourself, right? Verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to you, everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So there is a degree of self-regard that you ought to have, but the warning here is don't think more highly of yourself than you should. Uh, The Bible is very frequent in its warnings against 
pride. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble there is wisdom. Jesus says in Luke 14, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Don't allow pride to infect your thinking. Thinking more highly of yourself is simply thinking you're better than other people. It's when you think you have gifts that you actually don't have. It's when you make an effort to always promote yourself and always insert yourself and always advance yourself. It's being consumed with yourself. The person in the world you think the most about is you. (laughs) The illustration I always use to show this is that if somebody gives you a picture of your high school graduating class, the first person you're looking for is yourself. (laughs) How do I look? What did I look like? What was my hair like? What clothes was I wearing? You know, we're just consumed with ourselves. I mean, this is a problem we all deal with, right? Pride is making an idol of you. And so what Paul is saying here is don't think too highly of yourself. It's a dangerous thing. Jonathan Edwards says there is nothing so hateful to God, nothing so contrary to the gospel, nothing of so dangerous a consequence as pride. As pride. Pride damages relationships. So this is Paul's instruction. Don't think too highly of yourself. But we have to balance that with um, what Paul goes on to teach, which is that you shouldn't think too lowly of yourself either. I think there's this misunderstanding that if people just think, I'm just the worst, awful, most useless, horrible person, that somehow that's being humble or somehow that's being biblical. It's, it's, it's not. What Paul goes on to tell us here is that you have a gift, you have skills, you have abilities that have been given to you by God. Not to mention the fact that you're made in the image of God. That's alone enough to assure you that you have dignity. But you have a gift and you're part of a body, and that's the analogy that Paul uses in verse 4. He says, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we we don't all have the same amount of gifts, nor do we have the same gifts. Some people are given gifts that others don't have. But he goes on in verse 5, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. That's the analogy that Paul is using to describe the church. It's like a body. It's like a human body. There's all parts of our bodies, right? We've got fingers, and we've got eyelashes, and we've got tongues, and they all serve very different purposes. They're very unlike each other, aren't they? Very different, but all very important. Imagine trying to live life without fingers. They're small. They don't seem to make a big deal, but if you didn't have them, you would really miss them. That's the way it is in the church. We all have been given gifts, and although you might think your gift is small and tiny and inconsequential, it's important and the church needs it. It's not helpful for you to think, oh, I'm just so awful, I'm just so untalented, I don't have anything to offer. Yes, you do. God has gifted you. He might not have gifted you like He has gifted others. Maybe you have less gifts than others have. Okay, maybe so, but you still have a gift. And we are individually members one of another, Paul says in verse 5. We belong to one another as part of a body. And what that means is that the gifts that God has given you don't belong just to you. They belong to us. Your gifts are not yours, they're ours. 
I have a right to your gifts. You have a right to my gifts. We have a right to one another's gifts because God has given us these gifts for the benefit of the body, for building up the body. And so don't think too lowly of yourself, friends. Don't think, I can't do anything here. I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to contribute. That's just wrong. It's just wrong. You're thinking too lowly of yourself. And so what Paul goes on to do here is, uh, in verses 6 to 8, is he gives an example of the kinds of gifts that people in the church have. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. There are other places in the Scriptures that give other kinds of, of gifts, and I think there are gifts that we have that aren't even listed in Scripture, actually. So this is just a sample, but here, here's what he says, uh, starting in verse 6. Gifts that differ according to the grace given us. He mentions prophecy, uh, which is just speaking by divine inspiration, we could say, perhaps manifested through preaching, Today, there's a lot more to be said about prophecy. I'm not going to go there right now, but prophecy, speaking by divine inspiration. Verse 7, gift of service. You, know, you might be thinking to yourself, I'm not a preacher. I couldn't preach. Well, you can serve. Service. The word there for service is the word that's used for deacon. So the, 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 the task, the ability to just bring practical help to other people. It's just that simple. Service, verse 7, he talks about teaching. Teaching is just making the truth of God's Word clear in such a way that it nurtures and builds up and helps the church. Verse 8, he who has the gift of exhortation, or the one who exhorts, this is the, the one who has the gift of encouragement, the person you go to when you're feeling down, the person who affirms, the person who identifies the good things in your life, the person who can counsel, come alongside and lift you up. The gift of contribution, verse 8, it's just the gift of, of giving. Having resources or wealth to give, but not just having those gifts, but having a heart of generosity and wanting to give those things away to help people in the terms of wealth and resources both. Verse 8, Leadership, the one who leads with zeal. This is the person who is able to get people to follow him or her. That's what a leader is. We have leaders not just in the church, but in the parachurch, in the home, in schools, in the workplace. There are different ways that leadership can be exercised. And then lastly, in verse 8, the gift of mercy. The person who, who looks upon the needy, the poor, the sick, the widow, prisoner, the elderly, and the heart is welled up with compassion, and that person wants to do something for those people. Not everybody has that gift. We're all responsible to be merciful to some degree, but some are more gifted than others in mercy. And so here are some examples of, of the kinds of gifts. And one of your responsibilities as a Christian is to think of yourself with sober judgment, identify your gifts, and use them in service to the church. Here's one of the best ways to deal with loneliness. Friends, I'm not saying this is going to solve every problem or every difficulty you might have, but one of the best ways to deal with loneliness is to stop resenting the gifts that others have, identify the gifts you do have, and start using them. Serve other people. Get out of your mind and give to others. That's why God has given you your gift, and that's how we ought to think of ourselves. So secondly, let's think of this. How to think of your friends. 
Now, I'm using this word friends loosely, okay? Um, I'm using this word friends really to identify, uh, you know, I think all of us in this room. That that is our brothers and sisters in Christ, those we have uh, relationships with in in the body of Christ. Because the context here, again, according to verse 5, is the body of Christ, the church. So how do we think of one another? How do we think of one another in a sense that we can build community and fellowship and friendship and create, really, a sense of belonging here, like, like we all belong? How do we do that? I saw an article uh, recently. <clears throat> Headline was this, churches are dying due to friendlessness. And one of the person's quoted in the article, said, yeah, you know, I go to church and everybody's nice to me, but nobody wants to be my friend. And it goes on to give some examples of challenges that some people face in in the church, getting people to listen to them, um, feeling like they can be vulnerable, facing people that are always too busy. These things make it hard to build community. And you know, th- there are reasons, there are explanations why we're, we're busy and why we aren't as vulnerable as maybe we should. But there is some truth to these arguments that we need to listen to. So how do we create a sense of belonging, safety, community, fellowship here? Well, that's what Paul goes on to talk about here in verses 9 through 16. And it just seems like a shotgun blast of things that he's given us here. Uh, so I, I've tried to organize them as best as I can here in five basic categories <clears throat> about how we can create a sense of belonging here at New Life. And the first one is love. Love. Verse 9, let love be genuine. Let it be sincere. Let it not be hypocritical, not fake. We're not play-acting. We're not acting like we love one another We actually do. We don't approach people giving this outside veneer of affection while inside we're resenting the person in our hearts. That's hypocrisy. Let love be genuine. But isn't it interesting? He immediately goes on and says that love should also be discerning because he says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. What does that have to do with love? Verse 10 talks about love. The start of verse 9 talks about love. Sandwich in between is this thing, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. I think the reason why that is there is because a major aspect of loving people well is being able to tell them the truth. If you were at our Andy Griffith night last night, that's exactly what we talked about. That love is not just giving blanket approval for anything somebody wants to do. Sometimes we think that's love. Oh, if they're happy doing it, I should just say it was okay, it's good. No. 1 Corinthians 13 says love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. And so love does involve sometimes confronting what is evil, what is wrong in the lives of our friends. That's true love. It's not loving to just put a stamp of approval on anything our friends want to do. Verse 10 goes on also to talk about brotherly affection. That's the word from which we get the word Philadelphia, brotherly love. So what should characterize Christian community is a sense of family, brotherly love. We love one another like brothers and sisters, mothers, fathers, sons, and daughters. And esteem others, exalt others, put others before us, outdo one another in showing honor. Make it a competition where you're trying to exalt others more than yourself. Love should characterize the Christian community. But secondly, also commitment. Commitment. 
Relationships are hard, right? We all know that. Relationships are difficult. People offend us. We get frustrated. We're busy. And sometimes we just want to check out. And quite frankly, life would just be easier if we didn't pursue relationships. But here's what Paul is telling us here, verses 11 and 12. Don't be slothful. Don't, don't get lazy about this, but be fervent. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. I don't think that, you know, given the context, I don't think that's personal tribulation. I think that's community tribulation. And certainly we've seen that, haven't we, in the church with the pandemic and politics. And the church just seems to be so divided and against one another. That's tribulation. But what Paul is saying here is be patient in the midst of that. Remain committed. Be constant in prayer. Don't give up. Don't let the offense of somebody else make you quit on the church. Mark Dever says it like this, pastor in Washington, D.C. Do you want to know if your Christian life is real? Commit yourself to a local group of saved sinners. Try to love them. Don't just do it for three weeks. Don't just do it for six months. Do it for years. And I think you'll find out whether or not you love God. It's a convicting remark from Mark Dever. But this is part of what makes a community real. There's commitment to one another. Third thing we see, generosity is also effective in creating a sense of belonging. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. Notice the emphasis there on the saints. That is the priority, seems to be, the generosity. Generosity should be directed to the church, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, but not just giving of our resources and money, but also giving of our time. Seek to show hospitality. That's where you open your home, allow people in, give them your time. That's hospitality. That's a way to be generous, not just with your money, but with your time. And in fact, the word for hospitality here actually means love for strangers. So while hospitality does involve reaching out to your friends, it also involves opening your home to people that you don't know so well as part of what makes strong Christian community. Fourth, peace. Verses 14 to 16. Peace. Verse 16, Paul talks about um, <clears throat> living in harmony with one another. That is, seeking agreement with one another. Seeking to be of the same mind, majoring and emphasizing the things we have in common, not the things that we don't have in common. We can't agree on everything. We're not going to agree on politics and favorite foods and sports teams. I mean, we can have disagreement, but we need to agree on the major things, the substantial things, like what the scriptures teach us about the gospel. We major on the majors, not on the minors, and seek agreement and to be of the same mind. And we can also show peace by just being present, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. When someone has a victory, you come alongside, and although you kind of wish you had that victory, you come alongside anyway and you rejoice with them. And you're happy for them, and you congratulate them. But you also are willing, in their time of sorrow, to come and weep with them. Not to come in and try to fix it and give all the theological good points to fix their problem. You don't have to say anything. You come and you weep with them. You're present. That's how to create peace. 
to be there for people. Now, skipping down to verse 18, I'm kind of borrowing. Um, this is in a, in a different section, but in verse 18, I think it's an important passage or important verse. It says, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Um, and I think what that passage implies is that sometimes actually peace can't be made. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be, be, uh, live peaceably with, with all. For whatever reason, sometimes people won't have it, sometimes people are not around, sometimes people won't hear it, sometimes people refuse. But the question is, are you trying to live at peace with everyone? You do what you can. If the doors are shut, there is only so much you can do. But peace uh, is an important element of Christian community. And the last thing is humility. Verse 16. Verse 16. Live in harmony with, another, with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. That is, don't be prideful. Uh, be humble. Um, uh, or to say, don't, don't be wise in your own sight. Uh, you know, one of the examples of being wise in your own sight is if you're not willing to listen to anybody's opinion. You feel like you have it worked out. You feel like you have it settled. You don't need anybody else's perspective. Friends, that's being haughty. That, that's being prideful. You, you won't listen to others. So don't be wise in your own sight, but then also there in verse 16, associate with the lowly. Associate with those that you would not otherwise have any interest in. I mean, isn't Jesus the perfect example of this? God in the flesh, the creator of the world who comes into our world, and he could be hanging out with kings and queens, and yet he chooses to hang out with prostitutes and drunkards and sinners, tax collectors, outcasts. Those are the people Jesus hung around with, and that is an example of humility. So, these things are good starting points for how to create a sense of belonging, a, a sense of uh, friendship, a sense of fellowship here. And, and friends, I would just say in response to all of this, in order for you as a Christian to, to obey these things, you have to be in community. You can't do these things by yourself. <laughs> you have to be in the church to obey these commands. And so we are trying to offer opportunities for that here at New Life. You know, of course, we gather here on Sunday mornings. It's one way for us to be together. We have equip groups that are going to be starting this week. These are small group study groups. Um, and um, we have life groups, groups that aren't really study-oriented but just meet for fellowship. Um, we have a pitch-in next Sunday. <laughs> After service, these are all opportunities to get together. Let me encourage you to think about signing up for one of these groups. There is a sign-up for equipped groups, but you need to sign up after service today because the groups are actually beginning even tonight. Um, but there's still room for you to sign up. And um, the life groups that we have, they all have sign-up sheets as well. Normally, we have sign-ups for life groups in September. Um, but as we are here at the beginning of a new year, um, the groups are continuing. But there's, there's more room for you. If you're looking for Christian community, you can sign up in the foyer. Okay, last thing to consider, how to think of your enemies. <laughs> how to think of your enemies. One of the most difficult aspects of human experience, right? You're deeply hurt, you're offended, and you want payback. You want to be John Wick, right, in that first movie. 
I mean, you, you want to bring the house down on this person who has offended you. How should Christians respond to this feeling of how we want to treat our enemies? There's, there's an active and passive response here. First of all, the active response that Paul is recommending. What he says here is instead of getting revenge, look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Bless them. Verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Wow, that, that's just hard to take, isn't it? Can you, I mean, your worst enemy... And what Paul is saying is you've got to take care of his, his needs. You've got to be generous and kind. You've got to be mindful of what he needs, and you've got to be active and step forward and bless that person. Why do we do this? Well, Paul goes on to say in verse 20 that the reason is because by doing that, you're going to heap burning coals on his head. And so you might say, well, isn't that actually trying to get revenge then? if that's the ultimate goal, and not necessarily because um, it all depends on, on the motivation, friends, because the purpose here that Paul has in mind is, is that which is ultimately good. Verse 21, do not, overcome, uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The idea here is that good would triumph, that something good would come out of it when you seek to bless your enemy rather than retaliating against your enemy. And so John Stott says it like this, our personal responsibility is to love and serve our enemy according to his needs and genuinely seek his highest good. The coals of fire this may heap on him are intended to heal, not to hurt, to win, not to alienate, in fact, to shame him into repentance. To bless your enemy can have a, an extraordinarily powerful effect, not only on your enemy, but on all those who are watching. As an example of that, um, some of you know about this person named Carla Faye Tucker. She murdered two people in Texas. She was put on death row. And the brother of one of the victims, the brother of one of the people whom Carla Faye Tucker killed, also wanted to kill Carla Faye. I mean, he was bent on revenge. And then his drug dealer gave him a Bible. And he read the Bible and he became a Christian, and his heart changed, and his family still encouraged him, you need to get revenge on this murderer, Carla Faye Tucker, you, you need to find a way to do that, but this brother did not want to do that, this, this brother wanted to, wanted to bless her, and so he found out that Carla Faye Tucker was at the courthouse in the city where they were, and he went down to the courthouse, and he saw her walking in the halls, and he went up to her, and he identified himself as the brother of one of the victims, and Carla broke down in tears, and this guy expressed his forgiveness to her in the halls of that courthouse. And he said after that, that's when all the rage and anger lifted. So he didn't wait for the anger and rage to lift before he was active in seeking peace. He sought peace. He was active in blessing, and it had an effect on his heart. So this is what Paul is saying. Instead of revenge, be active to bless. But then there's also here a passive response. Verse 19, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. In other words, don't act in this sense. Act to bless, but don't act to retaliate. Why? Because you're just supposed to get over it? No. Because the evil thing done to you was not so bad? 
No. Because, verse 19 goes on, leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, the job of vengeance, the job of revenge, the job of retaliation is not yours, but God's. That's what Paul is saying. You want revenge, but it's not for you to do it. Revenge will either happen through the activity of the state, which is what Paul goes on to talk about in Romans 13. We're not going to get there today. The state yields the sword and should bring penalty on wrongdoers. And in fact, Carla Faye Tucker was executed by the state of Texas. And so it did its job. Interestingly, Carla Faye Tucker was praising Jesus as she was dying in that room. She too had become a Christian while she was on death row. But the state doesn't always bring proper justice. We know that. The state doesn't always get it right. And so in that case, we're called to wait for God to bring justice on the last day when we're told that Jesus will inflict vengeance on all those who do not obey the gospel. So there is a wrath coming one day. It's God's job to inflict, not ours. Now, I know that this, for some, can be exceedingly difficult to hear. And I know some of you have feelings of anger and revenge against unspeakable wrongs that have been done to you. I'm not suggesting that this is easy, but I just want to remind you and just think you ought to consider this, friends, that there was a time when you were an enemy of God and God had mercy on you. Romans 5, 10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. In fact, if you want to go all the way back to chapter 12, verse 1, look what he says. Here's how this whole section begins. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. All of this that is written is in the context of the mercy of God, a God who has had mercy on sinners, a God who has had mercy on people who have been his enemies, a God who has loved us and shed his kindness and grace upon us by sending us his Son. So, friends, there is no doubt we live in a divided world. Politics, abortion, racism, masks, the list goes on. Seems like we've never been more upset with each other than ever before. But, friends, we are the church of Jesus Christ, and we are supposed to show the world how this is done. We're not to conform to the world in its continuing antagonism and hostility to one another. We're not to be shamed into looking at the world forgiving one another more than Christians forgive one another. What a travesty. We're called to set an example. And that has to start here. It has to start right here in my heart and in your heart. It has to start in this congregation. Stop waiting for someone else to do it. Do it here, do it now, with those in this congregation, with your friends, neighbors, whomever it is. We are to love one another as Christ loved us because by that the world will know that we are his disciples. So friends, identify your gifts, serve the church. Love your friends through love, commitment, generosity, peace, and humility. And bless your enemies because Jesus blessed you. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, these are tall orders from your word. And we acknowledge, O oh God, that apart from your grace, we have no ability. This requires supernatural work by your spirit. 
to love enemies. Would you please help us to do that? And where we have to entrust vengeance to you, give us the patience to do that. But I do pray, Lord, that this congregation would be a place of love and community and acceptance and belonging for all that you bring to worship you here with us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.